0: This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with Japan's Sevens strength and conditioning coach, Takumi Nishida. He discusses the challenges and cultural differences working in Japan, how COVID has affected the plans for Tokyo 2020 Olympics, and how they train their squad ready for Sevens events. This podcast was also recorded over the internet, so it may sound a little different to normal. I hope you Enjoy. Takumi, how are things?
1: Good, 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 good. Excited
0: to be here. This is
1: my first ever podcast recording session, so never done it before.
0: Well, this, I mean, this is quite strange because uh, I've known you now for, what, seven, eight years probably? Wow. Well, okay. because I went to uni 19, internship 20 year, 21 yeah, seven, eight years. Yeah, seven, eight years. Eight,
1: eight,
0: year. eight year now. Yeah, seven, eight years, and obviously kind of your first Dabble into strength conditioning stuff, kind of came in the football program that I was working on. So it's interesting to see see obviously your thoughts, but then your journey to where you are now, because um, obviously you've had quite a lot of jobs both here and um, I guess now abroad, back in your 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 homeland of Japan, if you like. Um, so do you want to just kind of explain to people for for those obviously that don't know you or anything, kind of what you're doing at the moment? Um, and yeah, kind of what that entails, etc.
1: Uh, yeah. So what I do now is obviously work as a um, strength and conditioning coach with the Japan rugby football union, uh, mainly with the men's sevens program. So, um, like we've got men's sevens, women's and then obviously 15s, uh, men's and women's and like each department kind of runs quite separately. So even though we're under the same union, like we've got like men's seven staff, which we don't cross over till like with the other department and stuff, like other teams. Um, so I've been with the team since I think twenty eighteen. So going into my third year with the team, uh, we've got three more SNCs now, um, hoping that we were going to do the Olympics this year, um, just to build up more like the number of staff so we can provide a better support and um, obviously having that next year, hopefully, um, yeah, kind of like working together for the team. Um, obviously being in, back in like being back in Japan, wasn't my first option. You would have probably know, um, <laughs> I think like Japan is kind of like the strange place to like look for a job in s and um, Like when I first got back, I didn't know anyone who works in that industry. Um, when you look it up, it doesn't come up. So kind of it's all like all done in a closed door. So like whether you, like if you know someone, you can kind of get your way into it. If you don't know, it, um, good luck yeah. <laughs> kind of situation. So um, Luckily enough, rugby was kind of getting big in Japan, so we had a quite a lot of um, foreign coaches, a lot from the UK, especially like in SC or physio kind of area. Um, a lot of the Kiwi coaches um, coming in, so being able to speak English in Japan is a good skill set to have, like especially working with the, the Japanese players mainly. Having a lot of foreign coaches, staff, and trying to be the bridge in between, it's definitely a good thing to have. Like in addition to your professional like skill set, so I started like emailing out um, all the different teams around my area who had British coaches. So when I email them, it's a lot easier for them to understand where I come from, and um, it saves a lot of time to explain. Okay, what University I went to, what masters I did, um, what organisations I worked with, um, so that whole thing was a lot easier. And um, if I chose like British coaches, but um, lucky enough, um, there are a couple of clubs where they had me over for like a, a day of training. So I spent a day with them, just like ask them loads of questions about um, how things work in Japan, and obviously I get to meet like the Japanese staff too. So I can kind of chat to them um, about how things run um, in this country and, and whether they knew someone that I can get in touch with, not just in rugby. Because I wasn't um, looking to like, work with rugby when I was coming back. So I was just quite open to any opportunities out there. But because um, when I got back, I think I was 25 or six, so it wasn't that age I can still do like a unpaid internship for still kind of, you know, spend a lot more time doing that kind of thing. Cause I think I've done that quite a bit during a time.
0: Yeah, yeah we'll, get <laughs> we'll get in, to that. We'll get to that. I
1: think I was quite ready to kind of have the privilege to get paid for what you like doing. Um, and lucky enough, um, I was, um kind of helping our British skeleton which is quite um like one of the best um, successful organization uh, for the winter sports in the UK um and one of the coaches knew a staff in Japan like the Japan Federation so I was kind of like helping them out in the summer camps um with many reasons um I'll explain more like how the Japan culture works later on, but um, I couldn't quite sign the contract with them just purely because of that. Um, so it was like just for like a kind of like, a spot coaches basis. So you couldn't make a proper job out of it. So I tell you what, let, let's
0: let's talk about that now. So I think <laughs> so people would understand. Yeah, this, I think right? you're referring to the fact that you have tattoos. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, do you want to talk about the cultural like differences, differences in, and and in and around that, yeah. and then we can explain so, why?
1: Like obviously, people would think, oh, if you're a person who comes from that culture, why would I do it? If you would have think that you might work there, um, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't think I would go back. Not I would have come back to Japan um, for this long to do like or to work. Um, but yeah, so obviously having tattoos, it's not seen as the good thing. And uh, just because of like back in the day, um, it was only for the prisoners. So once you've done or get sent to your prison, the only way to differentiate who's like someone who's not done anything. And a center prison is to have a tattoo, like a two rings on your arm or like a one ring on your arm. So that's how like the whole thing started. That's the sign. So when you come back, when you're out of it, people would know you've got history.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then yeah. A
1: few years down the line, obviously, um, many people will know Yakuza like the gangs that we've got in Japan from a long, long time. Um, they've got more like a traditional, what we call traditional Japanese um tattoos, which are more like a Klaus, you know, like a koi fish yeah. and all the demons and all that kind of stuff, and um, all on their body. So, like, from the get-go, whenever people see tattoos, it's got nothing to do with their personality or anything like that. Oh, bear from the side. Alarm,
0: alarm bells start ringing.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, because we've had that kind of culture for a long, long time even though now, like around my um, generation, a lot of people understand more, um, it's still not accepted. So if you've got it, you can't get a job. It's like this straight thing. It's So, yeah. So I had a job when I first got back in Japan, um, knowing that I might struggle to get an SNC job straight away. Um, I applied for... A gym nearby my house, which I thought, okay, at least I can kind of make use of my skill set to a different population. Yeah, lucky enough. So I didn't say it um, at the interview. I was carefully, I don't think I've ever read a contract that carefully. Um, I read word by word just to figure out if they say whether you're going to have a tattoo or not. Obviously, they wouldn't say it, but I was looking for that word where
0: it's implied they say
1: you can't have it yeah if they don't say it i'm technically not breaking their um so they didn't um but that job involved of me working in the gym half a day working by the pool side half a day and i didn't realize that you have to wear it's like a budgie smuggler kind of thing. Like, um, <laughs> <laughs> you go to the swimming pool, you have to be full on, even though you're just on the side, just waiting for someone to get drowned till you have to do anything. Um, you know, but you have to be full on ready. Yeah. Ready to swim, dive in, save someone's life. Um, so I got given that. I was like, Hey, am I gonna wear this now? Yeah. so that's the time I kind of told them, oh, okay, I can't wear it. Out of my leggings on and under my shorts. Ah, oh, yeah, so why don't I just go in my leggings? I'll take my shorts off. I go in my leggings. I can still swim with it. Um, and they said, oh, okay, so take your top off. Uh, put a bib on, so they'll know um, you're the lifeguard. I was like, other bib? Can I just put that on my like on top of my t-shirts? And then obviously they just can't understand why I was just trying to like why I was so hesitant to
0: you know why you're sitting in a heated room with a pool wanting to be layered up (laughs)
1: essentially yeah like refusing to wear their uniform for someone who just came in as a newbie on a day one
0: yeah
1: um, lucky enough um, the person who I paired up um, on that day was younger than me so again, a culture with like a hierarchy system, I can kind of overpower him, okay. even though I was on my day one. Um, so I kind of got away with it on that day. Second day I had to work with them, um, like a system manager, and then I got busted. <laughs> so I had to speak to the manager, and I said to him, like from my standing point, I didn't break any rules. It didn't say anything about it, even though I knew I'm stepping into a country or like the place where it's not accepted, you know, because if I knew they would have stated it, then, you know, I'm doing the bad thing, whereas I didn't. So I kind of told them, um, even though I knew that could happen anytime. So I didn't feel like bad or anything. They even felt bad for me. But, you know, that's kind of how my... First week back in Japan started <laughs> for having a tattoo. So um, yeah, so that still happens with the team now. Um, obviously, working with the like a national team with this culture background, I'm not allowed to go out with the like logo on my t-shirts with the shorts on, showing my tattoos. Um, you know, because we never know where I could be seen you know I'm not a player but you know there are quite a lot of fans now who um, are kind enough to come down to their training and just have a look at what we do so you know you never know where the eyes are
0: <laughs> So I guess obviously that it, culturally is very different to kind of UK and uh, yeah. obviously a lot of other kind of more westernised countries if you like mm-hmm. how does that factor to your training group so obviously I know you weren't mainly with the Sevens but you've got quite a crossover from understanding with like Kiwi coaches or, or mm-hmm. players or people from that heritage coming across and then obviously you've mentioned there you've got UK coaches coming across as well so how does that work in terms of when you're trying to build a team together you're working and obviously I imagine sometimes you are having to translate between the two what does that look like?
1: Um, so just um speaking of um like tattoos um foreign people who've got tattoos in japan are fine because somehow japanese people can put different glasses on okay they're from different countries so they must have have different cultures okay could be like a religious reasons why they've got tattoos on them um could be a fashion
0: yeah
1: okay but if i did it that's a different so are Oh, you're Japanese, or you look like you're Japanese. So if you've got it, that probably means okay, you could be dangerous. That kind of thing. Um, so that's the first thing I kind of struggled to, um, like fully understand. Like okay, so you kind of been, um, not racist, but you kind of like discriminating your own people within your own country with your rule. Yeah, but you're kinda of open to like external people. Yeah. Yeah. So I find that quite interesting because it didn't make any sense.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, just for that reason. But I think if it was something else, they would have trying to protect Japanese people over like a foreign people. But I think it's just purely different concept. So um I find it quite funny. Um Working with different like foreign players, staff—it's definitely interesting and hard. Like it's good that we get different, um, like cultures coming in. Like not just in sports, but like outside of it too. Um, you know, you probably know like rugby in Japan isn't a huge sport, even though like back of twenty nineteen World Cup, people might think um we could be like. Going up to the tier one nations, but you know that only happened for the last I don't know, like eight ten years. So it's still like I think we've got a lot to, um, like develop and improve and all that kind of stuff. Um, so having that different, um, like players from different backgrounds, coaches from different backgrounds, who kind of teaches what's good and what's not it's definitely good. Um, communication-wise, it's difficult. Um, sometimes I get messages on like LinkedIn from different parts of the world who's doing the same job, asking me whether um, they can come in and maybe do like a half-year internship. Um, without being rude, I think it's really difficult in this country because the language is just so different. and um, Especially for the sevens, we can't afford to have a um, translator Because a lot of the time what happens is we take 13 players for the uh, World Series Tournament with maybe like five or six staff. So normally that's head coach, assistant coach, S&C, physio, team manager and analyst. So having translator for that one particular staff or
0: player isn't how it works need someone to double up so you need your analyst yeah, yeah. to double up or so, obviously in your so case I, as strength conditioning coach you can do both
1: yeah um and obviously like i need to understand the sport to translate because essentially and um, you'll be there like mouth and ears and pretty much everything so if you mess up the whole team is going to be messed up too because you're the only way to communicate between the coaches and the players, you know. And then, um, yeah, so that happened to be um, pretty much on my first task uh, with the Sevens. So as soon as I signed a contract, I had to go to Hong Kong for the um, qualification tournament, which back in a time, uh, we weren't a top tier team. So we had to win this tournament in Hong Kong to qualify for the World Series, uh, which they've got uh, 15 teams as like a core team. And then depending on the continent you play, one team could be invited to make 16. Um, yeah. So my first job got told, yeah, so we need to win this tournament. You can't afford to lose. Okay. I've never worked in sevens yet. Yeah, fine. Um, by that time, all the previous SNCs were gone. So it was only me. And. Um, in a whole men's setup and uh, never done GPS and um, you yeah, fine and uh, never been on a tournament. I got taught. Okay. You're going to be on the bench. So on the bench, you're going to have five subs and then three staff, normally head coach, team manager, and then sometimes a physio. And then a team manager needs to do subs. You know, back in the day, I was pretty much the only person who could speak English in a team from the side. So yeah, so you're going to be on the bench, do the subs, do the whole translation, do the GPS. um, And you get given this like a radio to communicate with everyone um, on the field, off the field, uh, with the analyst back in the analyst room, watching the video and all that kind of stuff. So it was, it was crazy. Like I didn't know, A lot about sevens coming into work. Lucky enough, I understood English, but you know, doesn't do the job. You really had to understand what he's saying in the sport language. Um, Yeah, so
0: so how did you go about teaching yourself that? Because obviously, there's intricacies in in all sports, and you know, sevens will be no different. How did you go about teaching yourself those intricacies so that you can relay that? To the players.
1: Um, so a lot of the times, I had a pre-meeting with the coaches because normally they've got a plan on um, how they're gonna like play the game against this team, this team, this team. So if I knew what he was gonna say on the spot, I just need to say it. Yeah. So a lot of the times, I had a meeting with my head coach, and um, he was a Kiwi back then. Um, of what the game plan was, what he meant by, say, like, number nine, number ten. You know, sometimes those numbers could be different to the fifteens. Fifteens, I didn't know a lot about about it. So I was like, okay, so when you say nines, like, what do you mean? Which player you're pointing? Um, All that kind of stuff. So, like, a lot more communication um, with him. Um, And obviously not... Some like some of the Japanese boys kind of understand what the head coach is saying just because they're talking the same rugby, even though it's a different language. Yeah. They're talking about the same sport. So sometimes boys can guess it. So if I'm a little bit lost um, on the spot, they can kind of help me. So in a way, I think I had a good start with the team of like, I was in a position of whatever I speak or whenever I speak that kind of came from the head coach. So everyone listened.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, even though I was a newbie, everyone listened to a single word that I said. If they didn't understand it, we had a communication with the players. And sometimes I bring in a coach and in a player. Um, so, you know, without me kind of trying too hard, the environment was there to, you
0: know, so I well, guess I, I got to I got two questions around that. So the first one is mm-hmm. do you think that links to like the culture of Japan in terms of you mentioned earlier about being older obviously there's a hierarchy but for them because you're staff they naturally show more respect in that. And I guess the next question was in terms of if they were questioning something so if they weren't sure Um, And then you're having to have a conversation between maybe a player, you, head coach and back and forth. Do you feel there was ever times where it kind of got lost, it lost the effect of what the coach was trying to say? Or do you feel like because of the environment that you're in and the way you're able to have the quick dialogue or had support of other players that it was relatively snappy and they were able to get what he wanted quicker?
1: Um, so, like, like talking about the hierarchy stuff, um, in Japan, like, for the men's team, I think more than half the players are older than me at that time, or even now. So that's the funny thing, because even though we're staff, they'll respect you, but as soon as they kind of figure out my age, the way they use the language changes a little bit.
0: Okay.
1: So that's one thing we've got in Like in Japanese, um, we've got certain, um, let's say, like a grammar that you can use. Um, Like obviously like the formal one, a polite one, more like a casual one um, that you can use. Um, A lot of the times we kind of go in with the polite way of speaking to each other. But obviously, as part of the conversation, they find out my age. Obviously, I wasn't hiding about anything. But that's kind of like the first questions you ask in a new place. Um, Whenever they figure out it's got nothing to do with like a losing respect or anything but they kind of change the way they speak. The amount of formality goes... Yeah, that they lose. That's kind of how I figure out okay, so it's not good or bad or anything, it's just their character. So, you know, then I kind of use the play way of speaking to them. So that's what they're used to, okay. especially someone new. I don't want to change a lot on, especially like going into the tournament. I didn't want to give them any extra stress on telling them like, oh, I'm the staff. So, you know, whether I'm younger or not, it shouldn't change. Yeah. Even though part of me still thinks that way, like it doesn't really mean anything like the age or staff, like the rule. Um, you know, everyone should be quite equal.
0: Respectful.
1: Um, but obviously, we haven't got that um, here, so, like, whenever I just pick up, I just make sure, okay, so that player prefers this, this player, even though they knew um, I'm younger, or a lot younger than them, they still got polite, so I keep it that way. Or...
0: So individualising for the player, basically.
1: Yeah, so Cause... sometimes if they're trying to be polite for being nice, I go casual, so I can try to get more from them.
0: Okay.
1: You know, sometimes being too polite,
0: it's like a bit of an effort. loses the rapport in terms yeah. of you're not, so, not, not yeah. speaking their language, but you're not communicating in a way that they feel comfortable and relaxed. in. themselves. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that's how I kind of like choose
1: the way I speak. Yeah, so that was kind of a good thing that I understood that part of the culture. Um, so, you know, I just needed to pick up and change it depending on who I'm to, like, speaking to. Um, like, in terms of like translating, um, there was a time for sure um, that I've lost the boys from me speaking in Japanese, but that wasn't because of, I was translating wrong. So lucky enough, um, I think the translation was fairly um, on point, I would say. Um, (laughs) But why I was struggling a lot more was, you know, how I didn't speak Japanese at all whilst I was in the UK, just purely because I wanted to focus on speaking English and improving on that one. Um, So when I got back, I kind of lost Japanese a little bit. People might think that's weird, but you do. Um, especially in a working environment where I didn't learn anything about SNC in Japanese, my own language. So, you know, trying to talk about training or trying to do a presentation in front of everyone. Like, I don't know if she was speaking in front of people, but you, like, I didn't realize what I was speaking didn't make any sense to any of the Japanese boys who were sitting in that room. So when I finished the meeting, all the boys' in space are like, "Oh no, what's just happened?" Yeah. So that was kind of like the funny thing. Apparently, it still happens to me now here and there. Like certain words that I use, it's not correct. Like it makes sense, but it's not a correct use of term. Um,
0: what so- about in terms of in terms of um, like coaches' points? So, say for example, he's he's stopped the session. You're in you're in a session. He stopped it and mm-hmm. said. You've gone down the open side there. Actually, I want you to go down the blind side for one more and then open it out. And then you're trying to explain that in Japanese and they don't fully understand. And then, obviously, it's taken more and more time for that dialogue to take place. Is that something that's ever been a struggle? Or is that kind of... because is that Does that go back to what you said earlier, where they understand the game? So as long as you're in the ballpark, they understand what he's trying to yeah. say.
1: Yeah, yeah. So... Like obviously, I wouldn't say it never happened, but I know mean, it's when that happens, it's when I don't understand the concept of what the coach is saying. Yeah. So it's straight away, when he explains it. If I don't understand it, I ask the coach straight away. Okay. And then he says, oh, this and this and that. And then I say, like, oh, so now I know. Okay. Well, like I was choosing the right word for it. It's something I still don't know back then because it's like a blindside. side. I don't know whether the Japanese players use the same word for that situation. Okay. So I, just, I would just use the phrase like a blindside. You know, but, yeah, those things happened Whether I don't know how far I need to translate because if I wanted to, I can try to like, pretty much translate every single word to Japanese. Yeah. So those are the things. As I do more, I kind of figure out by looking at the boys' faces. Yeah. So if I translate it, they'll still understand what I'm trying to say. But if I say it and if I see their face and say, okay, they're thinking a little bit. Okay, so I didn't need to translate. I should have just said the word. Okay. So okay. Yeah, no, that makes like, sense. That makes sense. Yeah, okay. So even though I'm like listening See what the coach would say telling that to the boys i'm still looking at everyone's faces as i do it that's kind of like my way of getting that feedback
0: like, okay. especially
1: when a like, situation was kind of intense um you know i wasn't one of those um people you might sometimes see it on the like i don't know premier league football or something and um, the translator acts exactly the same as the head coach.
0: Yeah.
1: When they're translating. Yeah. So, um
0: I've been I'll, part oh, of that. I've got... been part of that. It's the worst. <laughs> yeah. Doing yeah. the same <laughs> arm stipulations and <laughs> you're pointing. Getting, you're like, like oh, all the
1: Body language and all that stuff. Like, I wasn't there. But as I did a little bit more, I kind of understood why that's sometimes important. Because like, even though the boys can tell a ton of the voices that the coach uses, if I go really calm, ah, oh, you know, you need to do this. You need to do that. Sometimes the message could get
0: lost. Yeah. Yeah. So it's fine when it's short. Well, my experience is five minutes short. As soon as it gets into one or two minute things, then you're like, come on, mate, you don't have to copy everything that he's done. Uh, yeah. Because yeah. they can
1: tell by looking at how the coaches are reacting. Yeah. 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 Like, especially on the sideline, I never did um, anything crazy. I just like, you know, kind
0: okay. of. So obviously you're at a point that you're at a point now. So you'll do a little bit of translation, but you've got other people around that can help and players and stuff who speak a little bit more. So if we focus in kind of on your your strength and conditioning work, if you like, in terms of like rugby sevens themselves, is there specific strategies that teams employ depending on like which team they are? So for example, would a Kiwi team be very different to an English team, who are very different to a Japanese team, and then how's that? affected you and your role in terms of new coaches coming in and the physiological demands they're placing on players or player recruitment and whatnot?
1: Um, so, for the last two years that I've been with the team, I've had a two head coaches. So, the one is Japanese that I'm currently working with. Um, the one before was the Kiwi coach. Um, and obviously, like... Every head coach has got different like, approaches to how they want to make a team. The head coach I've got now is a lot more, let's say, logical. So he likes to put out numbers um, on why we do certain things, why we do certain like, intensity of the training, let's say. It's purely based from so, like the game demand is this. So to achieve that, we need to do this and this and this. Whereas Kiwi coach before was more like he prefers like set plays and like all the systems. Okay. So back in then, um, I've only worked with him for like three months. Um, so um, I'm sure there would have been a lot more to him. But yeah, from what I understood, it, it's a lot more like set pieces, systems. So we kind of decided, okay, so from left-hand side and scrum and we go this this and that for two phases and then see what's in front be creative okay kind of style yeah so like the intensity of the training that we did back then and now it's like completely different um in terms of like facing a different teams yeah like everyone's got different playing styles so like a kiwi they've got a strong pride in defense so they can work harder for like good two minutes, just keep like defending purely for like two minutes, which is like in sevens the hardest thing to do. Cause you share the same like the size of the pitch with the fifteens, but we've got less than a half of the players on the pitch. Yeah. Um So like Defending for two minutes basically means you go side to side from their end to your end. Yeah. Um, So, and someone like um, South, uh, South Africa, um, they're physical, like they've got that kind of like a beast in them. And so every contact situation still come at you hard. You know, that's something they've got a pride in. And whereas like, if you look at Japanese players, um, we're quite known for like a short and a quick, um, type of like athlete across many team sports, same in, like a football. So we're trying to like kind of maximize that um, as our like a strength. Yeah. But obviously, like competing at the world stage, we can't just like a, okay, we're small and quick, so we just make sure we beat them with it you know if we were established rugby country then yeah we might be able to get away with it but someone who's trying to make it to the top level we can't neglect being too small it's gonna you know help us being too quick and somehow we can outrun them
0: okay so, so it, i mean talking physiologically you you've kind of got two quite different ways of well free there you've mm-hmm. got South Africa, that are physically very good, good in contact, are going to try and go through you if you like. You've got the Kiwis that sound like they're physically very fit and able to work for long periods and maintain that. And then obviously, you've got yourselves who are quick around breakdowns and all of that type of stuff, I'd imagine. So, how do you go about preparing? your players for a tournament like you spoke about earlier or Mm -hmm. um, one of those tests. So like, say for example, you've got South Africa coming up in in, in a game. Are you looking to increase their body mass so they can cope with that? If you're playing New Zealand, are you looking to slim your players down so they can work for longer periods? How does that feature in your planning?
1: Yeah. So, just to explain how the like a sevens tournament works, um, we do like two weeks of back-to-back tournament. So week one, say, uh, we played in Dubai. Um, so we played six games over in two days. So Saturday, we've got four games, which normally is three games. And then depending on where you finish, um, you play top eight or bottom eight tournament, like knockoff stages. And sometimes that could be two games or three games, depending on how well you do. Um, and then, depending on that tournament's uh, results, we get the different pool for the following week, which is in Cape Town. Okay. So we can't quite, like, guess who we're going to play. We know the first three teams that we're going to play in the pool. Yeah. But once that's done, we are just done not Yeah. So... um what we normally do is we prepare whoever comes in our way, we're trying to beat them, that kind of mentality. So mm-hmm. we're trying to create um, what we're trying to do as a team, not so much in you know, what they're going to do, because we know, like with the whole like technology and stuff, like all the game clips and stuff that's available everywhere. So we know, like, all the 15 teams on the World Series and how they're going to play. So what we're trying to focus on is um, every single player on the squad can play the whole games without any subs for the whole tournament. That's kind of the mentality we've got. Okay. So the seventh game is like seven minute half with a two minute break, and then the, uh, between games rests could be like an hour and a half to like sometimes three and a four hours. And we do that three times a day, six times in two days. So we're trying to have players who can do all of it. You know, in that way, we're saying with the subs we've got, we're in a better place to outrun them. So that's kind of um, like key thing that we've got. Okay, so if we struggle with the physicality, even though we don't neglect it, we still. Go quite hard in the gym and stuff but you know what we can do is because we are slightly lighter than the other nations we're in a better place to keep running so if we can keep running without getting tackled again we might put ourselves in a better position
0: so obviously you've just said about um them being able to work for seven minutes or half two minutes seven minutes and stuff and being really really fit so in terms of your training etc what does that kind of specifically look like how do you prepare your players for that
1: yeah so obviously for the tournament week it's quite hard to like go hard because a lot of the times we have to travel for like eight hours which means um we're going through a few time zones so it's a lot more about um recovering from it and just fine-tuning the things but um Like training camps we do, trying to imitate what the game is like. So the maximum games we can play, if everything goes our way, it's six games, which means we roughly run about um, 1,500 meters per game. So doing that six times, about 9K over two days. Um, So obviously we get that kind of numbers from GPS. Um, So... It's not just the the distance that we get, but obviously different speeds that we're running at and all the different numbers we can kind of take from those GPS. And a lot of the things we look at is how fast they're running and that distance in the game and how long they run per game. So we're trying to say if 1500 meters per game and say they're 20% off that it's them running quick. We call it high-speed running. Um, so, if that's kind of the basic demands that we know, um, in one training, which is about sixty minutes, we do some skills, some conditioning, um, some kind of like a seven v seven type of um, drill. In that one session, we're trying to go one point five or double that amount of what the boys need to do in one day off the game. So, if each day they need to run about just under 5k with the warm-up included on the game day. Um, We go on like a very, very hard day, we run about 10k in a day purely by doing rugby. So um, that's where I come in, the skill coaches come in to talk about, okay, so how we can manipulate that drill session to that intensity. Um, the last thing I want to do is to get them on the baseline, on the whistle, run, because everyone can do it. Everyone can be fit to a certain level. But obviously, for doing rugby, you need to use your, your head. It's not just you know passing the ball, running with it, to run for 14 minutes. You know There are a lot of things that you need to be able to do within it with the quick speed. So even when they're doing the passing drills, where we place it, do we want to get them to do it when they're fresh fast thing and um, off the training or do we want to get them to do it straight after they've done some kind of like contact conditioning so we test them how they can be switched on when they're tired and still be able to execute the skill um so um that's kind of how we set up the intensity in terms of like a, what the game demand is like and we're we trying to go above it yeah lot of the times and in the camp let's say we've got seven days and of a training camp in japan say day one monday and we get together and for lunch have lunch afternoon we've got field and a gym which is about like an hour each and on that field we do this um a lot of the boys hate called bronco okay which is a 1.2k running test you go 20 meters, 40, 60 shuttle for five times in a row. Um, so I set target for those um, uh, test. I don't like using the word test because a lot of the times boy trying to come up with anything that could class as like a niggle to you know, <laughs> trying to get away with it. But it's more for um, us to know what they are like coming into the camp. So what I figured out is once they go above 4 minutes 45, a lot of the things happens in the game it's going to go lower too. So that's kind of like a like fitness Threshold. Kind of like a benchmark. So like, it doesn't mean when they can run that quick, you're going to be amazing on the field. But if you're slow, there will definitely be something happening on the field that you might be, um,
0: or you could be doing better. So, just to get that clear, you do twenty what was it twenty yards uh meters twenty meters, 20 meters forty meters back,
1: forty meters back, sixty meters back um so you do that five times in a row, which makes it hundred- uh twelve hundred meters
0: okay, and you have to do it in under four forty five
1: it's like the the latest benchmark, so ideally it's four forty okay for the sevens boys um so um, anything above five minutes we see certain Lamberts start going down in a game or drills like a game like drills yeah. um, anything above 4.45 we start seeing they struggle with the high speed running towards the end of the game where someone who's got those two regardless of their skill level they seem to be able to maintain those um, like throughout so Obviously, like there are more things to it, but like uh, on the big picture, like that's kind of how we see it. So we do that first thing in a, uh, on the camp. So every time we see the boys on the on the camp, you know, sometimes they don't look too happy, <laughs> especially for us. <laughs> and then we do the gym, um, and then Tuesday sometimes do a triple session, one in the morning one straight after lunch and then gym and then we do that um, two days in a row so we're kind of trying to recreate um, the two days of the tournament and yeah. um, if it's not um, like purely for like preparing say like a, that kind of format happens like three weeks out the tournament if we've got more time in our hands sometimes do like four sessions a day or five so sometimes we go gym session at six in the morning and then half brekkie and then a.m. field training, which tends to be the hardest thing of the day. So we do a lot of running, a lot of rugby um, and then have lunch. They get about like two hours um, break afterwards. A lot of the boys just sleep, trying to recover as much as they can. Hit the afternoon field session and then we do the gym after, so the morning gym is more like off-peak conditioning. So on the rower or on the watt bike. Um, and what type so, of what type of sessions are they doing in those? A lot of it is like a circuit. Yeah. So those early morning gym sessions are
0: never like a taking it an easy. Okay. Yeah. So um, like what a thousand on the rower, thousand meters on the rower. Uh, no, rower was like a two fifty,
1: like a sprint. Okay. on the rower so they have to hit it like around 50 odd seconds okay um, but once we give them time it's easy for the boys or our boys mentality to hit it so they're quite good at being told what to do and trying to achieve it yeah that's like outside of sports as well once they've got the guidance or instruction of how to do things they're quite good at following. Yes. So we always put um, like a competition into the training. So from the get-go, um, get a group of three, if you win it first round, you get one less at the end. Okay. If you lose twice, you get two extra at the end kind of thing. So <laughs> yeah. it gives them a bit of like extra effort to find. And obviously it's the hardest thing to do when you first wake up in the morning, six o'clock, Sometimes it's cold. You get in the gym. You do that. Yeah. You know, but I think mental strength in those boys are something that we don't have it naturally, so it needs to be kind of like nurtured.
0: So how do you do? How do you do that? Obviously, you mentioned one way. So there. just
1: like a, yeah. So it's not always like a competition, like doing a what, bike first thing in the morning. But um, a lot of the time, it's just getting used to that competition. Um, It's the big thing uh, for them. That's one thing I picked up is that even though they think they're putting 100% effort, during the game, they're putting more to it once they face something bigger in front of them. So what I keep trying to encourage is like, that has to be your 90% effort. Otherwise, every time you go into a tournament, you're experiencing something you've never been to before. You know, yeah that's mentally draining as well, but if you can experience a lot of harder things during a training, that pain you felt or the pressure you feel during a game it's not an usual event, so you know how to deal with it you know how to cope with it you know so sometimes we might do running at the end of an hour session, obviously not to the point that we break them but that's something that I am expect, you know, because a lot of the times, oh, okay, an hour session, we've done 6K, so surely this is done. Okay, set, let's go. Kind of thing. You yeah. Know? Obviously, we don't always look good on their eyes, but um, that kind of an extra that they need to put into, you know, to achieve what they want to achieve. Um, Why first figure out, being with the Japanese athletes is that they're quite used to saying, okay, we get the next job, now. let's do it properly next time or let's correct it for the next game. You know for what I've experienced with like the like a top level athletes back in the UK, so you don't always get the next opportunity. You know, you don't always get the next chance. Once you get to that level, there is always another athlete or like a group of athletes who are trying to get your spot so you know, if you mess up that's going to be like a great opportunity for the ones who are waiting on the line
0: yeah
1: you know but I don't think they were kind of used to be in that situation purely because sevens in Japan's um, like a rug- rugby hierarchy is a lot lower than the 15s so we've got quite a small population of sevens players in Japan who are still playing for the 15s teams as well. So in many ways, even if you can't make it in sevens, they've got 15s. Yeah. Or even if you miss out on this tournament, just because we've got a small number of available players for us, they might get called up again. Yeah. You know, so there are many situations where Kray is that kind of mentality um, across the board. So, you know, always trying to encourage for them to like understand this is not an everyday job. You know, you're
0: lucky to be here kind of thing. So can you d- elaborate on the the 15s and sevens program? Cause I know that um, obviously we'd spoken about this before on the phone last week um, and yeah. you were saying how it works and can you explain exactly how it works and how it compares to some of your other nations? Like you mentioned New Zealand and South Africa and England uh, earlier. Yeah. I don't know a lot about
1: women's um, side of it, so I'll just speak purely on the men's side of it now, but um, the senior 15s is on the top of the pyramid, so if you get caught up to it, that's like your ultimate goal for the like as a rugby player in Japan. The second thing is probably like a, what we call junior Japan, which is like a team B of the 15s men's. So that could be from the uni students to, I don't know, someone like our age. And then we've got under 20 men's on the third in the hierarchy. Bear in mind, the team I work with is the national level. So that they are the top tier of the men's sevens. We're still not on the parameters yet. And then that's probably where we come in in a joint place with the high school Japan. So... In Japan, if you get caught up to the sevens camp, but also you get caught up for the 15s camp of whatever the category that is, a lot of the boys choose the 15 side of it because sevens is still kind of like, even though it's not new, it's new to them. And obviously, we finished fourth in the Rio Olympics, um, but it's not quite recognised. You know, finishing fourth. Is an achievement, even though we didn't quite um, get a medal. But you know, look at a World Cup; they finished eighth. You know, that was like the best, like best thing ever in a in a country of rugby. But you know, it's different at the Olympics. If you got a medal, well done. If not, you might be forgotten.
0: So in terms of your, like, player recruitment and stuff, obviously there's, like, club sites in Japan, isn't there? I like, imagine that play each other similar to what Bath and Wasps and London, and, um, London Irish, et cetera, do over here. How does, I guess, how does that work and how does your player recruitment work from those clubs into your programme? Yeah,
1: so the, the main 15s uh, league is pretty much like a company base. So each like a major company has got a rugby team or like a football team, and then they create a league. So that's what we call a top league. So like a Coca Cola, um, Santori, and um, Honda, that kind of um, company has got rugby teams. So kind of similar um,
0: to um, like motorbikes and
1: yeah, like
0: a Formula One and stuff where Rome, McLaren have good, a team yeah. or Red Bull have a team. Yeah, that kind of idea.
1: Um, so. Pretty much all the players belong to one of those teams. Whether they're professional or hired as a like a um, company's employees but play rugby, so there are many like ways of contract um, for the rugby players in Japan. Um, and then we've got a second tier, which are still the same, like many companies own a rugby team. So. And then within it, the 15s um, top team kinda pick their players, and then what we can get our hands on is pretty much like the second tier players. So all the good players are pretty much get taken um, from the 15 side. Obviously, not everyone would be suited for the sevens, but
0: a lot of the times
1: they're skillful.
0: So, I'm guessing physiologically you're looking less at like second rows and props, you're probably looking more at back players. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, so just because of that hierarchy, we don't always get who we want. Even if we ask them, sometimes we say, oh, okay. Um, I've got the 15s games this weekend, so I can't come to your camp. But then sometimes it's like, well, when you come to this camp, you might be selected to go to the World Series where you get a cap. You know, but still, it's not their priority to... Whenever we see us like a hopeful players, we just get them in. You know, It doesn't always work out. Sometimes they can't tolerate with the... The demand of the sevens is just so different to the fifteens. We almost say it like it's just different sports. So, you know, it's not just our ends that struggle, it's from their side too. So even though we want certain players, when they come to the sevens camp, they might say, okay, this is not for me. It's just too hard for what they're used to doing. And thinking about, okay, every time you come into the camp, this might be the situation that they have to go through. Um, for however many years if they were to commit so you know it's not always easy for them to you know it doesn't mean we can like lower level of training camps just so we can you know have the players to come in
0: yeah
1: um, so that's kind of the thing that could be an issue. It's not like an issue, but like we struggle. So it's not that our players aren't skillful, but there are better players out there in Japan who play for the 15 side, who could play for us. Um, you know, so sometimes we just need to pick someone who can run quick. You know, someone who's strong, but can run too. You know, those little talents that they've got, we kind of need to try to spot them and trying to get them in, see if they like it. If they like it, we try not to break them for as long as we can. Um, so hopefully he'll
0: be like a next key player for the squad. So obviously everyone at the minute is working remotely because of mm-hmm. COVID and stuff. I guess in your role with the players that you have coming from all over Japan, you, you work remotely quite a lot. What does that look like?
1: Mm-hmm. So, obviously, for now, it is quite difficult. And as a team, what we set is just their health as a number one priority. So, um, we don't quite give them many things to do. A lot of our boys are all enough to be married or have family, kids, and all that stuff. So, um, we kind of want them to have that as their priority, especially like for the last few years we ask their time a lot to be in the camps and being away from um, who they want to be with and do what they want to do so we're kind of giving them this time as like just to refresh and just go back to um, you know where you get the energy from all that kind of stuff and see whether you've really got extra year to you know go for it so even though we kind of give them okay so home-based exercises that you can do Um, some like a road walk that you can do like cycling running so what Uh, would that
0: be in terms of like distances and stuff you're asking them to um, keep up
1: we don't set it
0: Okay. just literally just go for a jog uh,
1: yeah so say like a yeah 30 minutes 40 minutes um, if you feel like it go for like an hour run but because they haven't got access to like a physios or anything like that just if they get injured from it we can't look after them Okay. uh, because in Japan we don't quite know how f- or like how long we're gonna go for, like in this situation. And um, once we know that we can start having a um, training camp, then we'll start give them a little bit more specific training programs. But for now, we don't quite tell them what to do. Um, obviously, we, if we get asked questions like, "Oh, you know, near my house, I've got a park where." Um, they've got this, this, this and that so I can potentially use it for the training um, can you give us what um, I can do with it then obviously I'm more than happy to do it but um, yeah, like as a team from now we've kind of just taken a step back so they can
0: recharge Okay and in terms of like gym sessions and stuff both kind of externally and when they're with you what type of exercises are you you using to improve improve kind of i guess away from aerobic sense more of a weight-bearing type of activities
1: yeah so the funny thing is um the boys love going to the gym so even without us giving a program they kind of do um the gym work without us kind of telling them what to do but obviously we give them um, certain things to do especially for the lower body a lot of the boys seem to stay away from it um, so when they're away from us they do the 15th they join in with the 15th training um, which is good so they can keep up with the skills side of it they sometimes run around for like 2-3 hours which is a lot longer but because it's longer and the position and um, safety they don't always run around that they probably shoot at sevens player so we don't quite look after the or we don't really need to look after the gym because they'll do it anyway and um, we just might need to give them certain things that they just need to do on top of it um, but it's more to do with like the running that they need to keep on top of it so when they come into the camp it's not like we have to recondition them so they can tolerate with the sevens and then when they're used to it they will walk away from the camp for like a week or two and then come back again we have to like fix that issue again so um, like gym wise what we do and what the 15s do don't differ quite a lot um, you know essentially what we're trying to do is just get them strong so they don't get injured and they can tolerate with the contact um, side of it um, you know obviously someone who's small um, trying to put on a little bit more of a mask but That applies more for the fifteen side of it, so we don't really have to worry about too much on that um, side. Um, Obviously, we communicate with the S and C coaches from their fifteen side of it to see um, what they've been up to, whether we need to ask them to do a little bit extra. Um, So, if if not, because if we're in season, that means they're in season as well. So, you know what they're doing isn't too far off what they need to be doing as a minimum. And if they need a the little top up, we do. Um, but a lot of it is, um, it's the running side of it that they struggle because it's hard. So we just give them options to, you know, off feet. Sometimes it's a bike, sometimes it's swimming, you know, it's not always the same, but just keep their head into that side of like, you know, this is where it counts more. Especially, like especially for our game style that we're trying to achieve, you know, if you're strong, you can smash like five, six players on the pitch. Again, okay, say like a, say like Argentina or England. If you do it once and then you die off, you know, we can't put you on the field or you can't we can't pick as a like travelling squad. You know, so you just
0: need to find a balance um, between those. Takumi, obviously you mentioned earlier that kind of, what well, was hopefully going to be 2020 Tokyo Olympics, but with everything going on, that's not taking place, it's going into 2021. And obviously the hope is you guys will do well in that and I guess try and improve on Rio. In terms of training going into that type of competition, what do your training cycles look like? Uh, like how long will you get the players for? Um, and yeah, what... what in terms of preparation what were your preparation for that type of tournament or event look like um, obviously
1: with this whole COVID situation we don't quite know when we can go back into training camps and um, obviously we're talking, we were talking about like the first week of May um, which doesn't seem to be happening now so um, we're thinking maybe another um, a month to add to it so probably the earliest we can start um, training as a squad might be from um, mid June, maybe July onwards. Um, obviously, from there, we've got just about a year to prepare. Um, within that year, we don't know for sure how many tor- tournaments we can fit in. Just because, like everyone's kind of going back into that sort of like a normal life, so um, this whole like crossing over the continent and going over the borders and stuff. We don't quite know um, when that's going to happen us like that previous year. So we're kind of expecting the worst to say probably till the end of this year, we will not have any international tournaments. So if anything, um, we can potentially do a tournament um, um, without any crowds, Domestically to start with, and then maybe we can go like some countries in Asia to do some games. But again, that goes well. So um, we're kind of focusing on ourselves um, just to look at what happened last year. Obviously, the season got cut short or a lot shorter. Um, So looking at individual players and. what they can do, like what they can improve for the next, let's say seven, eight months, and um, building up to the Tokyo Olympics twenty twenty one, hopefully. Um. Um. So yeah, we don't quite know for sure how well we can like plan it. Obviously, we've got the plan starting from next month, which means we start pushing back, back, back. But obviously we can't just push it back at some point we need to cut certain elements off it um, so um, we're kind of starting having a conversation about what's something that we can't miss out on Yeah. you know building up to the
0: Olympics um, so if you're, yeah, looking, if you're looking like best case scenario you get the players back back in you, you manage to get nothing maybe internationally before the end of the year but then the run up after Christmas or whatever you you got carte blanche if you like you can um, go and do as you please and you can get all the work in that you need to what would that look like what, how long would you have on camps how many camps would you have um, what work would you do with them Like, what would your macro and micro cycles look like during that build up
1: yeah so the lucky thing about Olympic year is that we can have all the boys who signed a contract to commit to the sevens for that year to ourselves Okay. so we don't have to share the players between the 15s club team and us so even though they still belong to the 15s whenever we do the camps they come in unless they're injured so that's one good thing about um, this year and until the 2021 in terms of number of camps um I can't quite say we need this amount of like camps to be perfect obviously um we've got certain like targets that we need to hit and obviously one way to test it is to play against um like the world top level and see where we are and then work off it again just like tweak the plan a little bit so um but at least when we do a camp it's about a week and sometimes about 10 days obviously like the longer we do doesn't mean we get more out of it, especially like the demands they uh, will we, we put on themselves. Um, we can't do it that often. Um, especially for the Olympics, um, like the mental side of it's bigger. So we're trying to put more emphasis on that side and the support as well. Um, um, sometimes, um, we kind of neglect or overlook the mental side of it. So this year, um, even if it was happening um, in a summer 2020, we were kind of adding more support for the mental side of it to the players. Um,
0: What what did that
1: look like? How did you do that? Um, So we've got the sports psychologist coming in and joining the staffing team. So, um, you know, it's more like a constant support rather than us trying to be covering that part of it too. Obviously, it's not... Um, it's not something that we can provide a professional support for the boys, but now we've got someone who's in that area. Um, so like him coming in supporting us is if you can like make the best out of them, I think he'll be a like good boost for like for the boys. Like it's quite common for the boys to be quiet not sharing their issues okay again i think that part like partly comes from the culture too, um um not showing weakness yeah it's kind of like their thing so you know having um the opportunity to share that with someone who can like help you and guide you to the proper direction and um, i think will be put them in a better position to come into the trainings or to the tournaments essentially, like, ultimately for the Olympics, but like, especially from now onwards, all the selection's going to happen, so now we've got about 30-odd players who signed a contract to commit to the sevens. It'll be down to about 15, 16. You know, so more than half of the teammates who you're training with now will be gone. So, you know, I think like, supporting that and integrating it into the training, like I was mentioning earlier, how we put, like, a um, Mental kind of toughness element to the training you know with the professional advice we can implement it like implement it in a better way or more appropriate way without damaging them if that makes sense yeah um yeah so again like we don't know it for sure like how long we can do but normally like regardless of what events we've got it's about like minimum, like five days of training camps. Longest one is about um, ten days, two weeks. Like depending on location. So, so like I say, like in the summer in Japan, it could be as hot as like a forty odd degrees. Uh, degrees. So we kind of like escape towards north where it's a little bit colder, like around twenty. So um, and less muggy.
0: So we stay there long enough to get as much training as we can. So, probably, you're looking at the Tokyo Olympics, you're probably going to have, what, a, a, maybe a 10-day training camp before you start the competition. To Just to get used stuff. to the heat, yeah. Used to heat and stuff. Um,
1: yeah. yeah. The funny thing is, um, when they rescheduled the Olympics, I thought they what they could have done is to shift it to, like, an April May time, which, like, say, like, today, it's 25 degrees and it's really nice, whereas... From here they'll start picking up humidity, which makes the whole thing a lot worse.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, you know how the marathon was moved up to the north. So, you know, they potentially could have organised the whole thing a little bit better because that was one of the key issues that everyone was talking about, Japan's being too hot in the summer.
0: Yeah.
1: Um so all the like some of the event like events were moved too early in the morning or like to start or to finish. Um, even the rugby sevens was split into two parts in a day, so trying to avoid a midday. And um, I've used the same stadium before um, around a similar time, and inside a stadium it could go like beyond forty, just because it's like a half dome, so it's a little bit covered at the top, and not much of a wind goes through. So like outside a stadium, it almost feels a lot cooler, you know. So like the whole thing, I think, could have. Done it slightly different if we were to change it, so
0: that's quite interesting. Um, the way they kind of stay the same, okay. Well, listen, tax. I appreciate time difference wise, this is getting getting late for you with uh being over there, and you probably need to grab some food and stuff. But I think we'll probably try and um catch up again, maybe a bit closer to the Olympics to one find out kind of what you guys are doing what the plans were and also just to check in and see how everything was it'd be be great to kind of get a running commentary if you like I guess one last question I have before before I go which I try and ask everyone is who's the the best person you've competed with or against or coach you've worked with or against and why so um, for you it might be you know a head rugby coach or it might be another S&C coach that you've worked with um And, yeah, I guess, just explain why.
1: Yeah. Um, So you'll know my sporting background. Like all the previous podcasts and, like, the guests, um, I've never competed at the high level um, of a sport. So I'm not even, like, a former, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I don't think I've, like, played or competed against anyone at that high level. But obviously now I'm lucky enough to work with... um, what people might call like an elite athlete. Um, so from the same job point of view, who's in the same industry, um, Jamie Cheeseman, who's now working with West Ham Academy as like a head of athletic performance. Um, I think he's probably one of the few people that I look up to as an SNC. and um, obviously he's been in the industry for obviously longer than me being a higher place always seems to be ahead of things. You know, he's got more things in hands, he's got family, kids and all that. But the the amount of information that he's got, all the like the time and commitments to the work, but also outside of it, he's got like an on and off switch. Um, seems to be quite balanced, but, you know, not missing out on anything. Um and always trying to move forward as much as he can. So that kind of Mentalities. I was quite lucky enough to meet him from the early stage of my career, so that's still like an influence to me. On you know, there is always a little bit more you can do. Like even like for the coaching too. So I think um, that's something that I can kind of give it back to the players that I work with, just to kind of like show you know, just because we're coaches doesn't always mean you know all we do is out on the field and on the whistle or like say, uh, for us in the gym, you know, to give the best for who we're working with, you know, we almost needs to be better than, um, the players to be, um, you know, persuasive You know, if you are, if I was asking you to do certain things, you know, at least I need to be near level of that. Obviously I can't be the same comparing to the like a rugby players. Um, But, you know, that kind of, like, mentality, I think, crossovers to many areas, like, outside of um,
0: what I do. Just trying to be the best you can all the time and caring about the person and the player and not just... Yeah. And I guess
1: that's where a lot of, like, coaches now say, like, uh, art and the science of the coaching. It's not, you know, it's not complete. You kind of need to have, like, both elements.
0: um, Yeah, agreed. Great. Well, listen, mate, I'll let you uh, go and get some food and probably some sleep, but stay safe and um, we'll catch up with you soon, all right? Definitely. You too. Thank you for having me. It was great fun. Good. Tough man. I'll speak to you soon. Uh, See you in a bit.